Hello, I'm Zara, a self-published author of young adult and new adult fiction. And I'm Kelly, a fantasy writer being held together by threads of optimism. And this is Writish, the podcast by writers for writers, where we discuss craft and hot topics in the writing community. Our first topic is what writing means to us. So what first comes to mind to me, honestly, is childhood. And I know we've both been writing since a very young age. So I started whenever I was about seven or eight, and I used writing more as a thing that I could control. It was one of my only outlets that I had control over or that I had creative freedom with. So whenever I think of writing, it's more of like a healing and release. Yeah, I totally agree that it can be um, emotional catharsis. Um, The scene that inspired my debut book was actually written like right after my, my grandma didn't have, we didn't really have a funeral for my grandma. Um, She didn't want one, but this was even way before that where it was right after my mom and I had gotten back from the nursing home where she had been living uh, her last few months and she had passed away and we came home and we had some family come over um, and, you know, they were all talking very quietly and I kind of just like went to my room and I just like pounded out this scene about um, like it was a dream sequence and it was about a Thanksgiving, which has always been very important to me in real life, but it was definitely like writing out how I was feeling. And then that scene inspired the rest of the book. Um, but also like you were saying, like being able to like control what is happening in a way that like, you know, as young kids, you can't in general, but us specifically, I know with like some mental health things, like we couldn't control uh, things in a specific way, whereas we could with writing. So like, yeah, it's fun to play God with your characters in general. But I think definitely when I started writing, it was like the need to have some form of like healthy control that like maybe didn't always exist in real life for me. It It is definitely something that and like impacts like environmentally like because kids don't really have a lot of control about their environment it's they're stuck with their parents (laughs) and whatever environment their parent is unfortunately sometimes that's what the kids and it could be really good in my situation it was kind of (laughs) crappy so that's what I got stuck in but whenever you were talking about how your grandma and her passing inspired this book in this scene specifically that inspired the rest of the book I think also as writers like I've had a specific scene that was also inspired by my aunt and her illness. And then that kind of put Project Cursebreaker into play. So it's great because even though that there are these crazy things around us happening as writers, we can take it and form it into like this beautiful mosaic piece of artwork. And I also think it's, how do I want to word this properly? But like most writers I talk to, there's somehow death is intertwined with the writing process or some somehow. Definitely. I feel like there's so many authors on author tube, like just quickly to say, like 
there are so many who will be like, oh, I'm working on Project Death. And like to them, they know exactly what that means. But to an outsider, you're like, death is somehow involved <laughs> and it applies to all and none at the same time. It's like an overarching theme. And then I think we really like, because a lot of times whenever people think that, they think of like tortured artists like Poe and Fitzgerald and... It's like, no, we're not all tortured artists. Just life happens. And as writers, this is how we cope with life because that's what writing is. Sometimes it can be a coping mechanism. So. Yeah, 100%. And like that coping mechanism can be emotional catharsis, like we talked about, where it's kind of like playing out in a safer space what is happening to us in real life. Um or playing God. Uh, but it's also can just be an escape from reality. That's like similar, but different than just reading. Yeah. Because, you know, as a reader, you still don't have the agency that you do as a writer because the author has already decided what happens to the characters for you. Whereas with, if you're the writer, you're the one who's deciding. I think another thing too, about writing that, I think is really not, well, I guess it's talked about because people do get excited about their characters, but those first few characters and the first few protagonists you make, how they grow and evolve with you, with your writing as you grow and evolve. It's like some sort of magic that you can't really describe or, or put it in a bottle, but every writer I feel like has this bottle of magic with how they're their first character started, their first plots started. And I think that that's also another really cool thing is like how you said, it's not strictly just for tortured souls and (laughs) not every writer is out here bleeding onto paper, but just as a creative outlet too. Cause you know, there there's the group that's like the creative kids in school And, you know, it's like, are you a band kid? Are you an art kid? And then somehow there's like a handful of writers in there. And then I know that some people talk about, oh, oh, yeah, we, me and my friends, we would write like this story together and everyone else kind of grew out of it. But I didn't. I think it's important, too, to like recognize like writing obviously means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But the few things that we can all find common ground with, like the the way the characters change, the way your story changed, the way you grow, it's just amazing. I think that's a perfect segue into our next, you know, topic, talking about our personal writing journeys, um, how we started writing, when we started writing. Um, We have already talked about how we were both writing as children, but um, I started even before I could physically write myself, handwrite, and definitely before I could type. And I was just telling stories to my mom when I was like maybe as young as five years old and she would transcribe them for me. And then once I was able to do it, I was uh, starting a lot of stories, but it wasn't until fourth grade when I was like around eight years old where I was – I had a school assignment where I had to write a story and I wound up writing a 100 page novel, whereas all my other classmates maybe like turned in 10 to 20 pages, if that. Um, And I just never stopped, Uh, you know, like I kept writing full length stories, even though some I was like, you know, I don't know if this one's ever going to get published. Like one was a full length story. And then um, 
it was just a reminder of a very painful time in my life where I was like, I don't really know if I want to actually put this out there. And then my grandma died and I had that scene inspiration and I was like, okay, here's a different story I want to tell. And there are maybe some aspects from like the other book that I can bring in, but, um, it really, that was kind of like a story that's never going to really see the light of day. And, but every book since my debut book, debut book has, you know, been published, uh, self-published, but still, you know, I, I just take my writing very seriously and it is kind of like a lifesaver for me amidst school always being crazy. Now there's a few things that like popped up that I wanted to touch on. I feel like every writer has that one English teacher and I don't know if it's true for you, but like, I know me, I've had multiple English teachers that are just, they're so encouraging and they're just like, Oh yes, this is really good. And then it's like so super sad whenever the end of the year comes and you have to leave them. But then you find out like the next year, like your next English teacher is pretty awesome. Like I know I've spoken a few different times about uh, my freshman English teacher. Um, The class I was in was like, how do I want to wear this? It was like average, below average class difficulty wise, I would say. And, uh, while I was always creative in school, I didn't always try or want to put forth the effort or really care to, um, even though I did have that creative spark and that I did love writing. Like I can bust out essays. I can bust out characters. I can make up worlds on a spin. But uh, this teacher specifically got me into reading and reading's always been difficult as well. So I just think it's nice that as writers, we always have like the the one teacher maybe <laughs> to be there and be an encouragement. And then another thing was how you were talking about <laughs> how your mom would write down the stories that you were telling her as a mother. It's so adorable and so flattering to see Luna come up to me sitting at the kitchen table while I'm scribbling about characters and outlines in my notebooks or trying to figure out, okay, what am I doing this month, even though that's like X amount of months away and uh, just trying to get everything figured out. And it's like trying to pin down chaos. <laughs> and here she comes with her little crayon and her little notebook and she's just wanting to do what I'm doing. So I can't like I can imagine how special that was for your mom to like hear you create all this stuff even from like such a young age and for her to ha- be able to sit down and write it all down for you that must have been really special and I hope that if Luna starts doing that like it'll be like such a special moment that I'll be able to save her. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm sure it'll happen given she like already wants to copy you even just writing in a notebook. Um, my mom has printed out everything that I ever narrated to her and she typed up and like refuses to get rid of it, even though like I cringe at some of the stuff. Um, like my imagination was always pretty fine, <laughs> you know, but it's just the words I used were clearly not as good and also things were like not fleshed out at all. And I'm like, maybe one day I'll like try and revive something just for fun, like as an experiment, but I have definitely gotten better. Um, And I've, uh, they are not into creative writing, but I have little cousins who 
were watching me bullet journal. And uh, at Christmas, they saw me with my journal and I was time tracking and coloring in. And they like they were so fascinated with it that they then asked for like notebooks and pens and started journaling, Um, not really journaling because they were too young to like actually do that, but they wanted to be like me. And then this year they're now old enough that like if they want to, they can. So my mom got them actual journals and she was like, you know, all the pens there. Like, what do I get? And I told her what to get. And we got them normal pens, but also some glittery pens. And they were just both so happy. So I definitely think that Luna will inevitably follow in your footsteps with creative writing, even if it's something that like she doesn't necessarily turn into a career like I have and I'm still working on and you want to because you're doing you're pursuing traditional publishing. So we can't say yet that you're a career author, but like I believe like wholeheartedly that you will be. Yeah, because, you know, we've talked about it and we've joked about it, but I was partially being serious. You're going to be my agent one day. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because I was going to say, I know we've talked about it before, (laughs) but uh, because it might take me that amount of time that you finish up with grad school and get established in that career field for me to actually finish something that's halfway good. <laughs> but uh, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit, but yeah, I'm happy to become your agent if you don't already have one by the time I lose the title agent assistant and can just be called an agent. Yes. Um, going off of something else too that you brought up was how your your books are all self-published, which kudos to you. I could not wear that many hats, hence the traditional publishing route. But I didn't take my writing seriously until I was in college. And you, I believe, were how young whenever your first book went out? My first book came out, I was a sophomore in high school. And I had been writing like nonstop since fourth grade, as I mentioned earlier. And it wound up being, it was its own book. And it was called The Belgrave Daughter. And The Belgrave Legacy was going to be a three book trilogy about Fawn, who's a young witch, Caleb, who is this dark angel who um, is doing wrong things for good reasons. And it was going to be their story across three books. And I wrote the first one, and I edited it, and I published it after I had written the second and the third one. But after I finished the third one, those books never got published because I reached the end of the third book and I was like, third book is good. The second book is good, but it's not substantial enough to be its own book. And if I filled it up to be large enough to be its own book, it would be a bunch of filler, which I wouldn't be proud of. So what I wound up doing is pulling the Belgrave daughter and re-edited the Belgrave daughter, Tears of an Angel, which was the second one, and then Prophecy and put it all into one book, which is now called the Belgrave Legacy and is the one that people can buy. And then I took some of like the subplots that I had for the side characters and put that into Unmoored, which is the book about the best friend and the brother of of Fawn from the first book. Because, 
you know, I was like, you know what, this book is basically going to be about one couple the same way the trilogy was going to be. But now I really want to keep them separate enough so that I don't, you know, have, again, too little to put into a book about Alec and Ivy. Um, So there were some false starts uh, and it took a while. And I did actually query uh, the Belgrave daughter when it had a different name and was not as well written. And I got like two rejections and then I stopped querying, not because I was giving up on my dream, obviously, but because I was like, okay, I want it to be better. And then in that time, I was also doing more and more research about self-publishing. And then I was just like, I want to go for it. Like, I know people look down on self-publishing and they definitely did more back then than they do now, although there's still a stigma, unfortunately. Um, And so I've, I've learned a lot since that first book. I would say that when I started really taking my career seriously was when I was in college and had published the Belgrave Legacy as it exists now in... But you had how many books wrote as a high schooler, like three? That's what you said? You had three books wrote whenever you were sophomore or you... Yeah, I had... uh, So I had the one from middle school that like kind of transformed into the Belgrave Legacy. Mm -hmm. And then I had... I'd written half of a young adult dystopian that kind of got pushed to the back burner because uh, I wanted to do all of the Belgrave Legacy trilogy books, like all three couples, just one after another so I could stay in the world and live there and not switch back and forth too much. Um, I I love that world because I'm like between new shiny idea sparks that I get I, it's like no no I need to stay here in this world and then I can jump to that one <laughs> yeah and that's how I always treat my story ideas and I was gonna do the I was gonna return to my high school young adult dystopian right after I published Taming the Alpha on May 7th 2020 in the middle of the pandemic um It was already done before then. And I was just like, I'm not moving the publication date. But then for that Camp Nano, in July 2020, I was working on The Matchmakers, which is the young adult dystopian book. And I just kind of wasn't vibing with it. And then I had another story idea that I'd written down maybe like two years ago about, you know, an alien invasion and a new adult sci-fi romance and that just pushed itself to the forefront and then I wrote that and then I published that and then I'm like okay well now I have to stick in this world for a bit until the trilogy is done but come hell or high water I am making the young adult dystopian my next project is going to be a standalone because I've written two trilogies back to back and I need a break see can we just talk about how impressive that is for a minute because I don't know if I've like, I'm sure I've talked about it before, especially with you, but I did not finish my first manuscript until NaNoWriMo 2019. And that was three months after I popped out a baby. So, which is insane and like amazing. Well, it's crazy because I remember having Luna and I remember that like, up until that point, I wasn't writing because after I graduated and Logan and I got married, I just kind of took a break. I stepped back. Uh, my aunt passed away and the project I was working on was about the afterlife and it just got a little bit too real. And I was like, I need a break. Well, then I had Luna 
and I had this kooky, like Alice in Wonderland down a well, but make it thriller and murder. <laughs> and uh, I had, I'm getting so excited hearing you describe this. I had that idea, and it's called Adventures in Thimbleton. And uh, I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm, I found out about NaNoWriMo because I never knew about it up until that point. Because then that's when I started finding, I think that July, I started watching Kate, Kate Kavanaugh. And from there, I just kind of discovered more of AuthorTube. And through that, I found out more about NaNoWriMo. And I'm like, you know what? In November, I'm going to do it. And Logan, of course, he's like, okay, if you, if you think you'll be able to do it with, you know, three month old and it works, then you do it. Like he just wasn't wanting me to get like super overwhelmed or put too much pressure on myself because your girl is wonderful at putting the pressure on herself. <laughs> High skill. Same here. Pisces. Hashtag team Pisces. Let's just, you know, put so much pressure on ourselves that we're like Atlas holding up the weight of the world. A hundred percent. And uh, yeah. as a new mother and as like never finishing a book before, because I... I know I will say things now about my writing and I'm not as confident with it as some other writers might be, but I am a lot more confident than what I was a few years back before I entered the community because of uh, some things I did with my writing that Logan would tell you that he strongly disagreed with because I threw away a lot of stuff. And I threw out. Oh, girl. Yep. I deleted a lot. I threw out a lot. And he was he was like, you don't want to keep that. And I was like, no, it's trash. It's garbage. It doesn't deserve to be here. Like with my dramatics, you know, and he was like, I feel like you're going to want it. And I was like, no, never. It's trash. (laughs) And now it's like. Have you gotten to the regret stage yet? Because I've also thrown out certain things and been like, ah, you know, like had I had that draft written down, it would be a lot easier for me to just like copy and paste, you know, old versions of drafts for, you know, behind the scenes looks at my stuff. And now I don't delete anything thanks to Scrivener where you can, you know, write something, take a screenshot, basically. They call it a snapshot because they're basically saving a draft of your document that you can revert to Yeah. um, if you make a mistake or whatever. But also just for me, it's like, I'm not necessarily going to roll back because once I make a decision, I normally stick with it. Uh, but because I've done so much writing and I, I'm more confident in my writing process now than I was during my first book where I was so wishy-washy, um, which is why I took like over a year. And now I can write a book, at, write and publish a book in three months. Uh, <laughs> I, um, yeah, I never delete anything anymore. And see, I got to say not deleting it, it does help but I also was like I don't want all these papers so now I just save it digitally like in the cloud in multiple places (laughs) and I have it if I want it girl listen this was papers folders like you know those little like office folders that like bind together it was folders of that it was note cards it was everything handwritten and I only had a few things typed up on Google Docs so I still have access to some of the things on Google Docs before I you know went through my delete eating frenzy but it's I wish I had kept all of my handwritten stuff because that was stuff I started in high school 
And at this point, I threw mm. it all out. But to be able to set back with a three-month-old in 2019 at the end of November and say I finished like Adventures in Thimbleton, it was such a proud moment. And I don't know, it's just, it, it took me so long. And it took me, I don't know if it took me having a kid, popping out a kid, or if it took me to get to just where I was at in that point in life where everything else was so stable around me that I could finally sit down and finish something. But just to write the end was so satisfying. And now it's like, I I crave writing that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that's really good though, because some people never get to the end and, you know, they'll hear advice of like, oh, you gotta get to the end to prove that you can. And, you know, they may roll their eyes at it, but it's really true. And it is rewarding to reach the end. Even, you know, as authors, we're all like, oh, first draft. I'm so excited. It's trash. (laughs) I got to revise it. You know, it's it's still something where like I saw it through to the end. Yes. That a lot of writers don't ever reach. And I can't remember the the person who said the quote, but I remember seeing this quote and that's what kind of got the fire going under me. It was all the first draft has to do is just exist. It can be total garbage. You know, it just has to be there. Something for you to work with. But I, I know we've been talking about this and kind of touched about how we both went through a little bit of just throwing our stuff away. <laughs> but I, yeah. just just tossing it to the abyss. I wonder how like if there are if like, you know, the muses ever just shed tears over how many writers just throw their stuff away because they don't feel adequate enough with that. Jane Smiley, she said, every first draft is perfect because all the first draft has to do is exist. So I agree with that. Yes. And I I think your journey, like as a writer, you're always going to be on this journey and on this kind of trying to always better yourself and better your craft. But I think sometimes the journey really starts with just that first crappy draft, like because you have to start somewhere and you can't. Yes, you can start with lots of unfinished projects. Obviously, that's what I did. I had so many things unfinished, but I didn't really feel like a quote unquote true writer until I had that first draft setting in front of me and it was done. And I think lastly, we should talk about imposter syndrome, insecurities, and other lies your brain tells you. Because I feel personally, I have went through this a lot before I entered the AuthorTube community and really got into it or into even just commenting during live streams. I was like, oh, my writing is is not good enough. It's not this. It's not that. And that can be such a hard place to dig yourself out of whenever you're by yourself. So even Logan commented, he said that since I've made all my writing friends, that I, I seem more confident about my stories and I seem more excited about pursuing new ideas, which I think is obviously he's going to see it more than what I am because I'm over here living it and he's outside watching me. But yeah, my mom could say the same thing. I 
like I knew about AuthorTube pre-pandemic because I had actually done like beta reading for Jesse Elliott, who is an author tuber. And then also I was an, I was an early reviewer. Like I got an advanced reader copy of Eve the Awakening, which was Jenna Moresi's first book. Yes, And uh, it's not the series that she's like gotten really, really well known for. And, um, she didn't have a good experience writing that book, unfortunately. So I don't think I'm ever going to get an answer in like a sequel <laughs> about how that story ends, which is really a bummer as a reader. But anyway, like I knew both of them and I watched their videos, but I didn't really watch author even though it would have been very easy for me to, because Jesse is friends with Brooke, who is friends with Kate and Kate is, you know, friends with, Jessica and and Cachet and all these people who I've since, you know, followed thanks to the pandemic. And then, uh, oh, and Keelan, totally forgot to mention Keelan, uh, who is another Canadian author tuber who is friends with Jesse too and has done awesome things and interviews on her channel. And they, I was just going to writing sprints, like as a viewer and constantly commenting and talking and things like that. And they kept being like, you should make an author tube channel. And I was like, no way. I am not someone who's going to be good on camera. And I don't know what I would talk about. And no one wants to hear me talk anyway. And obviously, I've gotten over that feeling because I'm on a podcast that I'm making with my good friend Kelly. But it's just, I feel like, unfortunately, no matter where you are, imposter syndrome can hit you if you feel like, oh, there are all these people who are better established and already know what they're doing. And I'm coming here as a newbie, which is true. But that doesn't mean that you don't have the skills, have the potential to be as good as them and that you don't belong there. Because if you never try, you're not going to get any better. So it's like the community is definitely helped me. And I think that is the most important thing that you can have is someone to kind of fact check you and be like, no, like this is okay. Like it makes sense that you're feeling this way, but it's not true. Can we also talk about how, uh, our friendship started with me and chat at you, at Jordan in your lives. And you were like, Oh, you could come on my channel. And I was like, no, <laughs> So that's kind of yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you were the one who came to me with this podcast idea. And I was like, I don't know if I'd be good at a podcast. Listen, I think what makes us so good friends is that like I have all these like crazy ideas and just like they they come and they go and they're fleeting. Like I want to do so many things. And then you're just like, hold on, we can actually do this. Let me tell you how we can actually do this. <laughs> Yeah, there's – so for those of you who are also, you know, just fans of YouTube, there's – you probably have heard of the Project for Awesome, which was started by the Vlog Brothers, who are John and Hank Green, and their organization, um, Don't Forget to Be Awesome, or DFTBA. And, you know, every year and growing more so every year – because they're more and more established, they get other YouTubers and celebrities to kind of like have perks for 
certain donations through, I think it's Indiegogo. It might be Kickstarter, but it's one of those two. And I think it might've been two years ago. Um, They always send it out the year after. So I think the perk was for two years ago, but I received it in 2020. Uh, It was a podcast of Ben Carlin and Hank Green. And they're both the younger brother of a brother duo on YouTube. And the Super Carlin Brothers actually started by doing the Vlog Brothers Challenge, where you have a year-long conversation in vlogs every single day on the same channel with someone. Um, And they were both talking about how like they're the younger one and they have all the crazy ideas and their older brother is the one who's like, no, or the older brother will be like, yes, this one, we can do this, but like you gotta do it systematically so that it actually works. You can't just jump into it. So I feel like we kind of had that relationship, but at the same time, you know, if I'm ever like stressing out, you then become like this protective, like, mother friend, you know, that everyone should have. And if you don't find you a good one, um, where you're like, no, 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 like you're doing great, sweetie. And like, I believe in you. And like, I know you're feeling down, but you're awesome. And you need to remember that. And I hope that I can do it for you. But I definitely don't have the same maternal energy. I have like the hype woman vibe, (laughs) more so. Yeah. Can we also talk too about how we're the same age? Yeah. Like just how opposite our like our lives are. Cause like I'm over here like mama rolling it up, but I can be like crazy idea off off my rocker. But then it's like, well, someone's having a bad day and I'm like, where are they? I will hug them and shower them in love. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm same age, single and in grad school and just like still living with my mom listen i go to you though whenever like some days i'm going to tell you guys the struggle can be real for your stay-at-home mom friends reach out to them because sometimes we're not okay we'll be sitting there like doing the dishes and i'll just be like i'm not a bad bitch anymore what happened to me and then i'll just shoot you a message and you'll like hype me up and i'm like yeah Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I wish I had that because, you know, I, like I already established, I'm not a mom, so I definitely can't be a stay-at-home mom. But my first year in college, I got clinically depressed and really badly. Um, I think I might have been depressed at an earlier stage in my life, but like no one really believed me. Um, And some people believe me enough to be like, oh, it's bereavement, but that's not depression. And I think I had surpassed bereavement and was in like clinical depression sooner. But anyway, I kind of like hit rock bottom in freshman year of college. And I have a very loving and supportive family. But I, you know, internally, we talked about how us as, you know, personally, and probably partly due to our Piscean nature, put so much pressure on ourselves. And I was always praised growing up for doing things. So when I got really, really depressed and had no energy to do anything except schoolwork, and it's a wonder that I did that at all, except for like the debilitating fear of failing out of college, um, I wasn't doing anything. So I kept feeling like an imposter of like, I'm not smart. I'm not a writer. I'm not writing. I'm not creative. I'm not creating. I'm like 
I'm a student because I'm enrolled in school and I don't want to flunk, but like, I don't feel like a good student because I'm like not interested in learning anything right now. And all of that is kind of like was compounded by living for so long. And I unfortunately still am, although I, I think I'm grappling with it better is like the smart Asian stereotype, which people will tell you is not racist. And as an Asian, I will tell you it is racist. Um, but um, it's like a weird type of thing to live with because instead of making sure you're not fitting a stereotype, you're almost forcing yourself to fit one. And uh, it's also unique because if you're not fitting the smart Asian stereotype, you are then torn down by not just non-Asians, but also Asians. Uh, and I've had both happen to me, but it's just like the imposter syndrome tied in with what you know are real expectations is sometimes really hard to do because the college is a real thing with expectations. And so are, you know, so is that racist expectation. And even though, you know, we should all be able to say like, screw that and not like have to deal with it, things like that exist. So I think there is always a degree of imposter syndrome is like, oh no, you're too in your head. You can do it, whatever. But then there are other times where it's like, unfortunately, there are external reasons as to why you feel like an imposter, but you need to learn to be okay with who you are and just try your best and have people around you who support you in that so that you can feel like less of an imposter. I think that was really well worded. Um, I know with, with me personally, I am a white woman. I look very much white woman-y. So I can't really touch on like different stereotypes, I guess, that go with with that because I don't really know a whole lot except, you know, ooh, your basic white girl and her leggings was her Starbucks. Like, But I think how you worded that, it, it is very well-y worded and something that people do need to be aware of. Because there is external reasons why people might not feel like they're adequate in in something yeah. to, a, to a degree. And it's not so much like internally they, they can be like, you know what, I can do this or I am decent at it. But then you have the, the environmental input that can also make it hard for that individual. I know um, I – in the family, it's – because of what I went through whenever I was younger as a child. Um, I was always the strong one, labeled the strong one. And that that can be hard because then whenever you feel like you're to your breaking point, you can't break down because you have all these other people depending on you or you have all these other people that you have to prove wrong. Because as a 10 year old little girl, I was told you're never going to amount to nothing in life. You're just, if you get anywhere in life, it's going to be because you were laying on your back. At yeah. 10. That's then, awful. So it's like, okay, I have a lot of people to prove wrong. And then it's like, if, cause, uh, through my mini diagnosis that I have going on, um, it, it was hard because then I felt like I didn't come out of that situation stronger even like with my mental health but now I know 
just because I have these mental health issues doesn't make me a weaker person. It's just how my mind adapted and how my brain had to adapt to survive situations I was in. So while I can't really like have too much experience talking about like external factors with like racism and stuff, um, there is like other things that I can like relate to you on like mental health. (laughs) Yeah. And we're going to have an episode about that, but I think you're kind of, you know, like we've established, you don't have to deal with racism as an external factor, but you had a very different environment. Like you said, you were told that like you wouldn't amount to anything and I never had that. And that, definitely takes a toll. And I think, you know, there are all these problems in the world around discussions about racism. A lot of different groups feel like they're alone. And then when we do come together, it's very short lived before something happens to drive a wedge between like the racial groups again, which, um, you know, is not good for anyone except for racist white people who want to keep us divided so that, you know, we can all just organize and change or at the very change, if not completely dismantle, you know, racist institutions. But you were raised in what what you've described to me as a very sexist culture and culture is so important because I'm. I am Chinese and I have been uh, obviously been on the end of racist remarks because of that. But I grew up as an American and my cultural values are very different than my roommate who was from who was born in China and has lived in China her whole life, except when we were roommates in New York. And I don't think you should undersell the cultural factors that you've had. It's a very good point. I'm trying not to get like teary eyed because, you know, emotions, hormones. (laughs) But yeah, this is kind of like our friendship for people who are listening. Uh, You know, one of us will open up to the other and about, you know, sometimes we'll just talk, be really excited about each other's stories, which is most of the time. But sometimes you just need the good friend to like validate you and your experience and your imposter syndrome while also being like, they're not true. These are lies that your brain is telling you as uh, Kelly titled this topic. See, this is this is why whenever I came to you with the podcast idea, I'm like, oh, we could just talk about anything. <laughs> and then here we are. We're talking about our trauma on the episode one. Welcome to Rightish. <laughs> yeah. Woo, welcome to Rightish. We talk about writing, life, uh, mental health trauma but you know nothing that would trigger people and um if we do we will put a warning at the start of an episode um we definitely have an episode that will feature kind of heavily on mental health uh planned for the future but you know like we said in our trailer writers have lives outside of writing and also those lives impact our writing as you heard in our you know what writing means to us and our writing journey so like it's all intertwined so you're gonna basically get all parts of us it's like a nice little quilt with everything woven in together that that's 
good way to put that. And um, another thing too, I think you shared it. I can't remember if you shared it on Instagram or if you shared it on Facebook, but it was about turning your what ifs. Cause not only is it super awesome to, to find friends in this community to validate your writing or like, even like the critiques I've gotten because I, I did want critiques. Like it was so nicely put that it didn't feel like what I thought it would be like, Oh, this is terrible. It was so nicely worded. Like, Hey, I see what you're trying to do here. Maybe try this route instead. It might work better. Like it was just so nice. And it just made you feel all butterflies and warm. But another thing that I saw that I think you shared, because I think we talked about it was turning those negative what ifs into positive what ifs. So like, oh, well, what if my writing sucks? Why well, if no agent wants it? It's like, well, what happens if a few different agents want it? And then you have to pick which agent you want. Yeah. So I think turning those negative what ifs and the inner voice kind of training your inner voice to be a little bit more positive. It's not going to happen overnight, but just day by day. I know um, my year on AuthorTube was June 29th and my journey and my confidence for that whole year has raised so much and I'm sure it's going to continue to raise because you got to surround yourself with like-minded people, but like-minded people that are still going to call you out on your BS if need be. <laughs> yeah. But you also want to make sure that those people, like Kelly said, you know, like they're not going to be mean about it because there's a difference between constructive criticism and, you know, malicious comments that yeah, someone could learn from a malicious comment that like, oh, this section is really bad. But if you just say this section is bad or I don't like it, that doesn't give the other person a chance to improve. And I think when you're doing it for other people, we need to be compassionate and remember that they're also writers and they're going through all the same imposter syndrome that you've had tied in with whatever else in their life affects their type of imposter syndrome. Um, but then, you know, Kelly said it very well, where you have to retrain your own inner voice too. Like, because as, as important as friends are, and we've been talking about this the whole time, um, at the end of the day, you are by yourself as a writer. Um, so you need to try to internalize the positive stuff to at the very least balance out the negative stuff inside you and then surround yourself with good people to boost you when you need yes. it. Yes. And I think, I think that, wraps the first episode up in a nice, neat little box. This is The Writish Podcast, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at The Writish Podcast without a hyphen and on Kofi at ko-fi.com slash The Writish Podcast, again with no hyphen. Be sure to join us for our conversation about Preptober plans. Bye. Bye.